Welcome to the Metaphorist's Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is Any Day Now by K.E. Redmond. K.E. Redmond writes about the extraordinary possibilities of our everyday world, that interstice shared by mystery and hard science. Let's jump in. She pushed the intercom button and waited, taking in the sprawling brick pile that was the Unadilla senior living community. It could have passed for a grand manor or a country club, but the ramps at the doors were a dead giveaway, even if she hadn't seen one or two geriatrics, bundled to the eyes, cruising the grounds with their walkers. She wondered where they were going. There wasn't anything around for miles. She'd driven out from Boston, taking the interstate west, then back roads where, despite GPS, Unadilla's entrance eluded her. Finally, she found it, nearly hidden in the undergrowth. Two stone pillars with a nondescript sign and a chain-link fence stretching off through the woods on both sides. The razor wire was unexpected, though, and driving up to the main building, she noticed discreet security cameras at intervals. Somehow, she wasn't surprised when hers was the only car in the lot. Walking to the front door, she looked to the north where the sky looked threatening. It still hadn't snowed this winter. It was certainly cold enough. But any day. She hoped it would hold off until she got home. She hated driving in the snow. The intercom crackled. May I help you? Uh, yes, I'm here to see Professor Servine. Professor John Servine? He's expecting me. The first lie. A small one. His reply to her email requesting an interview had been more of an open-ended, we'll see. Your name? Cat? Cat Dobolovsky? But he called me Dobbs. I mean, that's how he'll remember me. One moment. Behind the glass-paneled door, a shadow crossed the room. Cat recalled another time she'd waited to see the professor, outside another door. It had been the beginning of her sophomore year, outside his department office. Through the frosted sidelight, she had been able to make out two shadows inside. One of them she knew was Trey Tottinger, the only sophomore to ever make the varsity team. He of the blinding smile and chiseled torso, catnip to cheerleaders everywhere. She'd met him once at a freshman mixer. He draped an arm around her and told her she had nice eyes. She reasoned, accurately enough, that he was both drunk and competing in the ancient and fraternal sport of bagging the homeliest frosh. She was reluctantly prying him off when he spied a more viable target and staggered away. Anyway, outside the professor's office, he'd walked by like she didn't exist. No exceptions, the woman on the registrar desk had told her. The professor interviews all students for his Astronomy 101 course. Don't worry, she said with a grimace. He'll be quick. Good luck. So she sat, listening to the low murmur of voices inside the office, although the conversation sounded one-sided. Abruptly, the door swung open, and Trey Tottinger stomped out, red to his ears. A voice called after him. I'd recommend basket weaving. You'd at least graduate with a skill. A pause. Next! Cat sidled in. The only chair was positioned directly across the desk from the professor. He was older than she'd expected, snow-white hair and waves to his shirt collar. The hand that waved her in flecked with liver spots. But his eyes, when he looked up, were blue, bright, 
oddly intense. Major, he barked as she slid into the chair. Uh, English? I see. He wrapped the desktop with his pencil. Let me guess, you needed a science credit and decided my course wouldn't be too much of a heavy lift. She nodded, then quickly shook her head. Well, which is it? He snapped. Yes or no? She felt a hot flush rise. He was trying to fluster her. That pissed her off. Yes, I need a science credit, but I really want to know more about the universe. Is that so you can write odes to the summer's full moon? He waved his hand languidly. Art thou pale for weariness, of climbing heaven and gazing on the earth, wandering companionless among the stars that have a different birth? He snorted. You're wasting your time. Wordsworth did it better than you could ever hope. Shelley. Cat returned his stare with a bland look. That's Shelley, not Wordsworth. The professor grinned. Speak truth to power, my dear. I stand corrected. All right, for entry to my class and all the marbles, tell me what you think is the most significant advance humankind has made in space exploration in the last 100 years. He leaned back, closing his eyes, lacing his fingers across his paunch. I'll warn you, he murmured. Your predecessor in that chair thought it might be warp drive. I hope you can do better. Cat thought for a moment. Voyager, she said finally. He sounded bored. I imagine you're referring to the television series. Or, Lord help me, to that benighted movie with the aliens who couldn't spell... Vegan Verger? Viger. No, the Voyager space probes. He opened his eyes. She thought he almost looked surprised. Explain. Because when we launched the probes, we looked outward, not in. We said, hello, is anyone out there? We didn't just look up and wonder. We took the leap. We hoped. She stopped, embarrassed. The professor closed his eyes again. Acceptable. Pick up your books in the bookstore. There will be two papers and a final. Do not be late to class. Next! A buzz, a click, and she was back waiting in the cold. The door opened. A muscular man in scrubs and a high fade stood inside the entry, a small bare foyer behind him. She noticed there was no reception desk, no chairs. He really didn't get many visitors. He motioned her in. Miss Doberlovsky? I'm Frank, Professor Servine's healthcare aide. He looked her over. The professor didn't say anyone was coming today. Is he expecting you? She gave him her most engaging smile. He said come any time, so here I am. I hope that's okay. It was kind of a long drive. Oh? Where are you coming from? Boston. I was back in the area visiting and thought I'd drive over to see my old professor. I was a huge fan. Well, me and about a thousand other students. He's, was, just an incredible lecturer. Getting into one of his courses was cutthroat. I did his introductory course and I was hooked. Not that I went into the sciences, no brain for numbers. But I've always loved astronomy. And he was one of my advisors on my senior thesis. Sorry. She stopped, blushing. I'm babbling. Lie number two. Well buried. But it had done the trick. Frank's wary look faded to polite boredom. That's okay. He's feeling pretty good today, so you're in luck. Follow me. 
I'll take you to him. They headed down a long, brightly lit corridor with tasteful, bucolic reproductions on soothing pastel walls. At regular intervals on both sides, they passed numbered doors. At Hernana's facility, all the residents decorated the doors to their rooms. Photos of grandkids, artwork, political signs, holiday wreaths. Not here. One door was like the next. Uniform. Regimented. Frank stopped outside room A219, his hand on the knob. What was your thesis on, if you don't mind me asking? Um, cultural acceptance and acclimation to scientific progression through mass media saturation. Yeah, it's a mouthful. I was an English major. The elevator version? Basically, figuring out how often people need to read or hear about some scientific breakthrough before they actually believe it. And did you? Figure it out? Not really. People are hard. They believe stupid things all the time for their own reasons. And once they do, it's hard to shift them. Everyone thinks they've got the inside track, huh? That's right. He didn't move to open the door. So, you're a journalist. Her smile tightened. Not quite. Science writer slash editor. I translate what the science guys write into something actual people can understand. Those who can't do right, I guess. Working on anything now? There was no point trying to get by him. She had to play. Lie number three coming up. A children's book. Introduction to the Giants of Astronomy. You know, Newton, Copernicus, Galileo. Professor Servine? She shook her head. He's big, but not quite in their league. I was hoping to run the list by him, though, see if I missed anyone. And catch up on how he's doing, of course. Lie number four. He took the hint. Right. He tires easily, so I'll ask you to keep your visit short. He opened the door and stuck his head in. Professor, your guest is here. I'll be down the hall if you need me. He stood aside to let her in. She could feel Frank's eyes on her back for a long moment. Then, quietly, the door closed behind her. The room was like any university professor's office. Crammed bookcases, drifts of paper, professional journals stacked in corners, and a desk barely visible beneath the detritus. All typical, apart from the hospital bed near the window. Its occupant turned his head on the pillow to regard her, his eyes over large and a skull pared down to a few strands of white hair and skin thin as tissue paper, sallow and wrinkled. Professor Servine? Remember me? Kathy Dobolovsky? He raised a bony hand from the crisp white sheets, immediately dropped it, as though the effort was exhausting. Well, come in. Don't stand there gawking. Find your seat. I can't stand late arrivals. Disrupts my chain of thought. Disrupts the class. Hurry up! The tone was testy, but the voice was nearly as she remembered, giving the lie to the frail form. She scurried over to the chair beside the bed, throwing her coat across the back, and sat down, setting her handbag at her feet. He stared hard at her. She stared back. Do I know you? Yes, Professor. We spoke. Well, we texted. I was one of your students at university. You knew me as Kathy Dobbs? Well, that's what you called me. I've come to say hello. Have you? He looked away. She followed his gaze. 
Outside the windows, an aide pushed a wheelchair containing an elderly man bent nearly double in the seat. I don't do outings, if that's what you had in mind. We don't need to, if you don't want. I brought you the last print copy of the British Astrophysics Journal. I thought you'd like it. He turned back, looking peeved. The last? She shrugged apologetically. They're going online. Save the trees? He made a noise between a snarl and a sneeze. Continuous publication since the 1800s, and now it's some mishmash on a computer screen. What depths will we plumb next? Lego models of the universe? Well, give it to me. She handed it over. I was in Oxford looking at Sir Isaac Newton's papers. I was writing a piece for a magazine there. The editor said he knew you. I think he was one of your graduate students. Frankly, she'd been surprised by the assignment. Out of the blue, the magazine had reached out to her. All expenses paid to the UK. Top dollar for an article any hack could have written. Who did that? The professor flipped open to the table of contents, running a finger down the titles. I can't be expected to remember the names of all my students. And Newton was at Cambridge. Wrong place entirely. Yes, I know. But the Bodleian had a recent acquisition from a private library. An amateur astronomer, contemporary of Newton's. May is still banging on about cosmic dust, I see, he grumbled, flicking the journal page with a finger that looked too fragile to take that kind of abuse. I told him to move on, but he never listens. It's dirt. Get over it. What were you saying about Newton? One of his contemporaries. It turns out they exchanged several letters. That's what I was looking at in the Bodleian. He flung the journal down on the bed and fixed her with a glare perfected during eons of oral exams and faculty meetings. In my experience, correspondence between such intellectually mismatched individuals as Sir Isaac Newton and some dilettante in knee pants is useful only as mulch. I see you hesitate. Let me guess, this unknown pen pal told our boy Newton he'd transmuted lead into gold. She smiled. There was some of that. Why am I not surprised? Not all of it. One of Newton's letters was interesting. Was it? You sound pleased with yourself. He scowled at her. Don't be coy, it's boring. Newton wrote to this friend about an astronomical observation he'd made. He described it as a most wondrous sight, three nights standing. Based on his notes, he was describing something near or possibly from the star Elnath in the Taurus constellation. I hadn't realized our English department was churning out qualified astronomers these days. Elnath, that's 100 light years away. 131. He reported it in 1700. I know when Sir Isaac lived, he retorted. I'm not senile. Yet. His fingers beat a tattoo on the sheet. And so? So? She repeated blankly. He clicked his tongue against his front teeth impatiently. Does this particle, this mere mote of information, carry some earth-shaking import? Elnath, as far as I am aware, would not be described as a wondrous sight. Giant star, blue-white in color. Nothing to write home about, so to speak. True, but it made me curious. What did he see exactly? Who else saw it? This part always excited her. She couldn't help it. 
So I started digging. Did you know that 100 years before Newton, Copernicus studied the occultation of Aldebaran, also in the Taurus constellation? Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. Two astronomers studied stars in the same constellation. Rewrite the textbooks. He rolled his eyes. She fished in her handbag, pulled out her phone, holding the screen up for him to see. I found a note he made, marginalia, about the star Alcyone. He wrote, and I quote, Trinitas and Tenebris, Mirabilis, Trinity from the darkness, wondrous. Trinity, three, just like Newton's three knights, and wondrous. Obviously, they saw something similar. He sighed. No, obviously you are enthralled to an illusion peculiar to our ignorant times, my dear. That there must be a causal connection between two completely unrelated events. She ignored him. I kept digging. I went back in history to observations by Chinese astronomers. Year 1054, the supernova and the crab nebula. Incidentally, also in Taurus. Let me guess, he sighed. Three sightings or events, or however you're mislabeling them. She ignored that too. I couldn't believe it. Three unique observations that can be traced back to some part of the Taurus constellation. Professor. She leaned in, lowering her voice. I think there's a pattern. I think this is contact. He snorted. Contact. I presume you mean some alien intelligence signaling to us from across the universe. Based on what? Three random observations. Do you have any concept of the distances you're describing? How vast? No. You were probably watching cat videos on your little phone when I covered that topic in class. I'll put it in terms you might understand. One light year is 5.88 trillion miles. Rounding up so even you may comprehend, six trillion is six with 12 zeros behind it. Alcyone is 370 light years away. The Crab Nebula is, let me see, he paused, but only for a second, 6,523 light years away. Multiply either number by a six with all those little zeros and you'll realize you're talking complete nonsense. She edged her chair closer to the bed. But Professor, I found others. Paleolithic cave drawings, he scoffed. Some daubing of stars on rocks. What about the wow signal? August 15, 1977. A signal was detected by Ohio State University's Big Ear Radio Telescope for 72 seconds. It came from the Sagittarius constellation. Discredited. Never detected again. Or do you imagine your aliens are playing some intergalactic game of ring the doorbell and run away? Besides, you are mixing your constellations. Or are you simply throwing anything into the pot to prove your point? She sat back, silent. Have I stymied you? He sneered. Good. Next time, get your facts straight before you bother me with nonsense. He shifted in bed, closing his eyes. I think I've had enough entertainment for today. Go away. Humor me. One more. He opened his eyes to object, but saw the mulish look on her face. In 1945, she began, a graduate student at our old university, who will remain nameless, 
observed a signal originating from Alpha Tauri, 65 light years away. Odd. I've never seen anything published. That would have been quite the coup, he said. It was rumored the War Department suppressed his paper in interests of national security. They probably thought they had enough problems with a world war here on Earth without worrying about extraterrestrials. You're citing rumors now, the true hallmark of a failed argument, he said. The contempt in his voice stung her. He was, is, a dedicated and brilliant astronomer. He believed in rigorous scientific observation. Sounds like a SWAT. Did your Bodleian friends tell you what a SWAT is? He asked sweetly. She leaned in, lowering her voice. Also, he was a little anal about keeping stuff. I know, because I helped him pack it up. Books, notes, drafts. He squirreled everything away. In time, I imagine, he completely forgot he'd kept a draft. It happens. A lifetime of stuff piles up. Retirement rolls around. Who wants to go through all that paper? Just box it up and shove it into the archives. Forget it. Practical obscurity. The door opened. Frank stuck his head in. You ready, Professor? Servine, who had been lying in bed, immobile, nearly levitated. Get out! I'll tell you when I'm ready. Get out! Frank's head disappeared. Kathy sat back. Oh, don't look so worried, the professor growled. I haven't thrown you out. Yet. But the outburst seemed to have drained him. He lay back against his pillows, his breathing labored. He took a deep breath. This feels like explaining fission to a sleep-depraved toddler, but let me try, he said. In terms of the Earth's development, all 4.5 billion years of it, our pathetic human civilization is but a blip, less than the last half-second on the timeline. For an exceedingly small portion of that time, barely 60 years, we have actively looked for others of our kind, although I am at a loss to understand why. We don't get along with the neighbors we have. Regardless, we've listened for signs of intelligent life in the universe. And do you know what we've heard? But, he held up a hand, forestalling her. Nothing. We've heard nothing. Of course, techno-transmissions may be exceedingly rare. Maybe none have crossed our path in the last 60 years. Maybe they only transmit to our part of the universe every 100 years or so. He chuckled. The other equally valid possibility is there are no transmissions to receive. Carl Sagan said, Kathy interrupted. He groaned. Dear Carl, let me guess. The universe is a pretty big place. If it's just us, seems like an awful waste of space. Spare me. We're finding Earth-like planets every day. Based on dozens of factors, one researcher estimated an intelligent civilization would be at most 17,000 light-years away. And that was in a peer-reviewed publication, she added quickly. Pie-eyed optimists. And how do you suggest we talk with them? We have no technology that can transmit to those distances. And what would be the point? Our message, optimally sent at the speed of light, reaches them. They send one back. Do you really believe there will be anyone here to receive it? As a species, we'll be lucky to survive into the next century. But that's my point, Professor. 
they're not sending a message. They're coming here. Look at it. Crab Nebula, 6,523 light years away. Alcyone, 370 light years. Elnaf, 131. Alpha Tauri, 65 light years. Every time they're getting closer. Please listen to the voice of reason. I'm sure I covered this in one of my lectures. It was certainly an exam question. The space shuttle travels five miles a second. At that speed, optimistically, how long would it take a person, or an ET if you insist, to travel one light year? 37,200 years, she replied. I got it right on the exam. I'm sure you did. And yet, you believe these intergalactic interlopers, these ETs, are traveling hundreds of light years within the span of our own written history. It is not possible. Do the math. It should be well within even your limited capabilities. But suppose they can travel faster than light. Impossible! They said men flying in the Higgs boson particle were impossible too. How else would you explain the signals? They're leapfrogging across the universe. I've always envied the latitude riders have to wax poetic when they fail to understand bad science, he murmured. I sincerely hope you're not thinking of writing about this wild theory of yours. You'll be finished professionally. Unless you enjoy being lumped in with the crazies and conspiracy nuts. He waggled a hand in the direction of the carafe on his nightstand. She jumped up to pour him a glass of water, waiting while he took a sip. As he handed the glass back, he held her gaze. Do you remember what I wrote on your thesis? He asked. She looked blank for a moment. Then her eyes widened. I see you do. You always were a bright one. My final affirmation of all your hard work. Do not disappoint me now. He slid down in bed. Trying to reason with you has been exhausting. Thank you for coming. Leave. Frank was waiting for her in the hallway. Good visit? She nodded. So-so. I think I upset him. Believe it or not, he was in a good mood today. Get everything you need? What? She wished Frank would shut up so she could think. Her thesis. Where'd she packed it? Did you talk to him about the book? He stopped beside the front entrance, watching her. You said you needed to talk to him about your children's book. Oh, no. We got off on a tangent. That's okay. Yeah? Say, about your thesis, you said the professor was one of your advisors. I'll bet he had some good comments. He always has a lot to say. You know him, she replied, going over in her head the boxes she'd stored in the attic at her parents' house. There wasn't much room in a studio apartment. The thesis had to be in there somewhere. So, like what? He was waiting, all friendly curiosity, but his persistence made her wary. I'm not sure, she said slowly. Something about science needing more scribes. Lie number five. She was getting good at this. <laughs> That's harsh. He opened the door. Have a safe trip back. Looks like the snow's holding off, but any day now. It's going to get here. She nodded. It wasn't until she was back on the interstate that she thought about Frank's questions. How had he known the professor had asked about her thesis? She checked the rearview mirror and sped up.
in his bed, the professor waited. He could practically predict the next move. So when the phone on his bedside table rang, he let it ring itself out. In the quiet, he felt the sweet pull of sleep. The phone rang again, jarring him awake. This time, he picked up. I'm sleeping, he snapped, then listened in silence. No, I don't see any need for concern. A tissue of conjecture and twaddle. Yes, I told her that, he replied. I have no idea if she'll listen to her favorite professor, as you so unctuously phrase it. I can tell you she's bluffing about my papers. I went through them all myself, as I'm sure you did. He listened again with a bored look. Your threats are wasted on me. You harbor the mistaken belief I care what you do to me now. And tell that useless blob you call my aid not to disturb me. He hung up. The phone remained resolutely mute. Still, for a long time he kept watch on the driveway, alert for comings and goings. After a while, darkness obscured the distant tree line, then gathered itself up to fill the room. The stars appeared. Tomorrow, maybe there'd be snow, but tonight the sky was clear and cold. He looked up at the twinkling lights, seeking out the constellation Taurus, the bull. Catalogued by Ptolemy in the second century, known since the Bronze Age. In the northern hemisphere, the constellation passes through the sky from November to March, but is most visible in January. That was a lift from one of his lectures. What did she call it? Leapfrogging. Inelegant, but accurate. He preferred a skipping stone. The Crab Nebula, Alcyone, Elnath, Alpha Tauri, closer and closer. And the last one, from his red dwarf, 8.72 light years away. The signal he detected when he'd nearly given up hope, just before his abrupt and unwilling retirement. In terms of the universe, 8.72 light years was practically next door. He hadn't bothered trying to publish this time. He was too old and tired to fight them now, but he wasn't going to let the knowledge die with him. When she'd asked him to be her senior thesis advisor, he'd agreed, already plotting. If the universe teaches you one thing, it is the long view. Signing off on her thesis, he'd written the signal coordinates for the red dwarf as though they were random scribbles. His way of telling her, when she finally put it all together, that she was right. He'd counted on them discounting her. Wrong major. Wrong sex. Why did they always underestimate women? But she was bright, and she'd always been stubborn. He'd known she'd figure it out eventually. With his help, of course. All the breadcrumbs he'd strewn in her path. The draft of his so-long-ago graduate paper. His notes on the Red Dwarf, left where she had to find them, packing up his office. The magazine assignment he'd finagled for her. Little nudges, trusting to her curiosity to piece it all together. And with the internet, social media, she had resources he'd never dreamed of. This time, they'd have trouble stuffing that genie back in the bottle. Let them try. Speak truth to power, indeed. He recited it over and over like a mantra. Crab. Alcyone. Elnath. Alpha Tauri. 6,523. 370. 
131, 65, 8.72 light years away. Getting closer. He'd almost wished he'd be around for it. In the dark, he chuckled. They'd run in circles, screaming. He could just hear them. The stock market would have a seizure if it didn't crash. The arrival of extraterrestrials would certainly take the shine off capitalism. Not to mention organized religion. Where do little green men fit in God's great plan? Do they get their own image of the deity? Their own savior? Their own heaven? It would almost be worth it to hear how they worked aliens into creation. Countdown. 6,523. 370, 131, 65, 8.72. He smiled slyly at Taurus. Any day now. Any day. That was Any Day Now by K.E. Redmond. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.